This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Keeping a watch on uh, cybersecurity stocks. That's after a report that Facebook is said to be on the hunt for a big acquisition in that space. We want to find out more on that and also about another executive connected to Oculus leaving Facebook. So let's get into all of this. Sarah Fryer is technology reporter here at Bloomberg, uh, joining us along with Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Sarah, let's start with this Oculus news. What's going on here? So this is just the latest in a series of founders to leave Facebook years after their companies were acquired. Back when Oculus was acquired, when WhatsApp was acquired, when Instagram was acquired, Zuckerberg had this this pitch where you could come join me and you can keep your company independent and kind of continue to run it without much meddling from Facebook. Well, fast forward a few years. This year we had the founders of Instagram leave. We had the co-founders of WhatsApp leave. And now Brendan Arib, the former CEO of Oculus. The door is open. Right. And they seem to be running out. What's is there something wrong at Facebook? Is there something going on, or or are agreements, <laughs> you know, are contracts expiring? I, What's going on? I think it's fair to say that the company is taking a little bit tighter control of these assets that they thought that they could kind of let be for a while. And Facebook's future is going to be dependent on products beyond Facebook itself. The user growth uh, is sort of hitting a wall in terms of number of people connected to the internet around the world. It already has more than two billion people. So Facebook's future is going to be Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus. It's going to be these properties that they haven't really closely kept an eye on. And then for Brendan's situation in particular, he already was sort of moved out of the CEO role a couple of years ago um, and into a role that's more to do with, with hardware and uh, PC-connected devices like the Oculus Rift. So obviously one of the other elements of that is that Facebook looks like it's going shopping, not necessarily for bolt-on acquisitions of the the type you just described, Sarah, but specifically in cybersecurity. So, Mandeep, come on in here. It seems sort of obvious why they would do this, especially given all the reasons Facebook has been in the news. But what does this look like in the in the near term, and and what are some potentials here? Sure. So one of the things that has happened with com- internet companies like Facebook and Twitter, they're generating massive amounts of data. And so far, they have not done anything in terms of you know protecting that data. Like unlike companies like Google and Microsoft that have you know invested in uh, security for the last few years, they are much better prepared in contrast to Facebook and Twitter and all the newer companies which house a lot of data but they really don't have those kind of security, you know, uh, software and on all the safeguards. Gulp? Like, how could they not? How could well, they not? These, I, I, I guess uh, when you are <laughs> in that growth mode <laughs> and you're focusing on, you know, driving adoption of your platform, security is always an afterthought. You go back in time with any business, security is always an afterthought. You don't, when you are a guy in the garage developing a new product, right. you don't think about security. 
everything but, that Facebook builds, they build almost every because they had a problem, right? I mean, this is a company that their early mantra was move fast, break things. They move fast. They made some mistakes in terms of privacy, in terms of user trust. And that's not just a story of this year. That is a story of Facebook since its very founding. And this company, you know, they, they realize when they have holes they need to fill. And if they're not going to have the engineers to do it internally, they, they absolutely need to look. But is this about a PR move or is this about, whoa, okay, we've got this huge business. We've got lots of information on everybody. We screwed up on some things and now we have to fix it. I think it's both. I mean, I think I think the the user trust that sort of image with the public about whether Facebook is taking charge of user security and taking it seriously and not just being reactive but being proactive about what could possibly go wrong. That hack that exposed the information of 30 million people was a real wake up mm-hmm. point because previously we were talking about developers mishandling data and you know maybe some human error this was something that was really at the heart of facebook's engineering a, pro- a flaw in their software which is something where you really need to bring the experts in to discover how is it possible that this happened and you look at all other uh, cloud providers internet providers microsoft google amazon they have all made security acquisitions it's just we don't hear about them because they aren't huge but they have all made talking security acquisitions. So you need to supplement your core product with additional security that you may not have in-house. 20 seconds left there. Is there a security firm out there that would be a good fit that people are starting to speculate? Security is a very fragmented market. It's a multi-dimensional market. Vulnerability assessment is one area where they may be looking, and there are plenty of companies to choose from. Identity management is another one, and we have highlighted that in our report. Yeah, there's a lot of those cybersecurity yeah. firms out there. Very much so, and this may kick off a whole different, uh, you know, sort of raft of acquisitions yeah. if Facebook uh, moves quickly. And that's very great, good stuff. Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst at BI, and Sarah Fryer, technology reporter, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Black is black. Well, as Carol mentioned, this next story we're going to talk about really is the talk of Wall Street today, given everything that's going on in the world and given everything that's going on in the world of investing. The scoop belongs to Jillian Tan. She is senior reporter for Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And it has to do with Blackstone and Saudi Arabia and a $20 billion commitment, the terms of which no one really knew until Jillian told the world. What jumped out at you the most, Jillian? The main thing that jumped out, a little term called revenue sharing. So one thing that no one has ever seen before, I don't believe, is a situation where one investor gets their fees reduced by 15% of what every other investor is paying. Is that normal? Is that typical? No. 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 It's, it's far from typical. So why would they do this? They're doing it in part, obviously. It's a huge uh, commitment. It's 10 times any other commitment to any other Blackstone fund. So, sure, it's understandable. They've got to, you know, provide some sort of concessions. The interesting thing is, though, they the PIF, the Saudi fund, already had concessions. So, if you look, um, their base management fee was reduced to 65 basis points for its second $10 billion committed. That's something like 30 basis points, maybe even 35 basis points sweeter than a normal investor. But is it, to be fair, I mean, that $20 billion commitment from Saudi Arabia, that is also unprecedented, right? So maybe the terms do change with something like that? Sure, it's unprecedented, but so the existing base concession is also unprecedented, I believe. So beyond the base concession, there's now another concession, which is revenue sharing, um, which is, I guess, designed 
in part to make sure that uh, the Saudi fund gets a share of the economics that the other investors are providing. So Jillian, you and the rest of the investing team, myself included, we've all been hearing from people today after this, uh, after your scoop went out. Tell us what people are saying to you and what this may mean for this particular fund going forward and for Saudi investments going forward. Yeah, so investing alongside the Saudis was already fraught. I think we've noticed, um, you know, we, we broke in, I think it was June, that Blackstone has raised $5 billion for this effort. That's already, you know, the timeline had blown out and also it was a smaller amount than many, many people expected, just given that the Saudi commitment, $20 in the can, all they had to do was go out and get matching capital. That's proved difficult. Given the political climate, that's going to be, I think, more difficult, more challenging now when they go out, speak to investors who now know for every dollar that they're paying in a management fee, 15 cents less is paid by Saudi. I'm curious, too, about existing investors. Are they saying, hey, wait a minute, so let's renegotiate my terms? Yeah, I think those contracts are pretty watertight. I've reached out to a bunch of them. Um, Yeah, I, I don't think they will be able to renegotiate, but it'll be interesting to see how the fund goes and what happens as they work towards March 30, which is their sort of, you know, kind of closing date before they, you know, stop accepting new commitments for the fund for a little while. And it's worth, I think, reminding people, Jillian, about sort of how all this came about and how it was announced. You know, we go back a year. The first big foreign trip by the president of the United States, Donald Trump, is to Saudi Arabia while he's there with a whole bunch of executives. Steve Schwartzman, the CEO and co-founder of Blackstone, announces this deal to much fanfare. They go out on the road. And at the at the time, it probably looks pretty smart. Uh And yet here we are in October of 2018 and given, as you alluded to and as Carol has alluded to, the political uh, backdrop to this, what does this tell us about sort of the state of limited partnership and and how you have to – solicit this money, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a very delicate balance. I think, you know, no way last May could they have predicted that, you know, there could be a journalist that gets chopped up and, you know, a lot of allegations regarding – the Saudi government's involvement and obviously people don't want to be anywhere near that and but they're already in bed right so 20 billion commitment it's very hard to extract yourself from that um it's very interesting yeah as you said it was announced last year in May optics were very interesting because Trump had sort of announced a big infrastructure plan and then that hasn't come through right. either so the world is probably not what anyone expected when they agreed to this partnership last year can we assume that this partnership will continue? I mean, I know I understand there's contractual obligations and so on and so forth. It's not so easy to back out, but the environment is very different from the original commitment time. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, there there are clauses, obviously, for termination and, and a bunch of things that have to happen to enable that. I have no idea if that that is on the table right now. Um, you know, base expectation is that the relationship remains strong and in existence. What's the feedback? Just got about 25 seconds left here, Jillian. What's the feedback you're hearing Yeah, most happy, happy today? to hear your feedback. Uh, lots of folks have said it's the talk of the town um, in PE land. So I, I'm pretty stoked with that. Okay. Very good. <laughs> Jillian Tan, uh, senior reporter for Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. More to come, I am sure, on this story. As Carol said, yeah. one of the most read on the Bloomberg The number today. four most read story in the past eight hours. It's been there all day. Um, so really fascinating. And, and as you said, and as we talked about earlier, you get to you know peel back the layers about some of these relationships and these financial contracts uh, between investment firms, PE firms, and some of their investors. Fascinating stuff. So 
check it out. Small and mid-cap stocks, yep, they have lagged the overall market and definitely the large-cap space this year. It's been a bit of a bumpy ride. Let's uh, get into where our next guest is seeing some opportunities, Jason, in both the small and mid-cap spaces. Bryant Van Conkright uh, is with us, Portfolio Manager at Wells Capital Management, $4 billion in assets under management. Uh, Bryant joining us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Hey, nice to have you back with us. Uh, it's not been easy to be in the small and mid-cap space, has it? Uh, has not been recently known. <laughs> <laughs> but I think these are looking better, though, I think. Why? Well, companies today are, are pricing in fundamentals that we just don't think exist right now. And so whether you're seeing it in the housing space uh, with things like like a, a Orange Corning or companies in the end of cycle area like Container Board, those companies just seem to be pricing in valuations that suggest things that just don't exist today. So uh, that tells us that macro factors are driving behavior and ultimately fundamentals on a company-by-company company basis will matter again soon. And so when you look at those fundamentals, what are some areas or even some names that look more promising at this point in this type of environment? Sure. So we're looking at places that have been overly punished by uh, multiple contraction or by input cost inflation pressure hurting short-term earnings power, which ultimately we think the pricing will be passed through. Um, so lo- no long-term pain in our mind. So look to housing. And in the mid-cap space, we like names like Mohawk and Owens Corning, uh, Mohawk in the carpeting space, Owens Corning in the, in the um, shingle space. Um, we like names uh, that have been impacted by China a little bit. So some of the off-the-beaten-path names like Avarian in the healthcare space. Phenomenal uh, company in the cancer space, but does some production in China, which tariffs are obviously hurting their, their input costs. Um, so we're looking for unique names like that today that we can buy at, at very low valuations. So, Brian, let me ask you a question, sort of going back to basics a little bit. You know, one of the challenges, I think, for a lot of people around small and mid caps is just isn't the research out there. There isn't all of the, you know, sort of stuff, to use a technical term, uh, that you might need. So what's the secret here? How do you go down a level? How do you get what you need to sort of make these calls with conviction? Well, that lack of stuff uh, is what actually helps us, right? So the large-cap companies have so much coverage that the, the inefficiencies of the market just don't exist. Yeah. And when you go down cap to small and mid, the market is far more inefficient. So what we're doing is spending a time analyzing 10Ks, talking to the company management teams on a regular basis, really trying to understand a unique level of knowledge of what a company that the market might be mispricing because they're focused on things like China, like input costs, the things everyone else can see and hear. We want to see and hear the things everyone else can't. And so that's where the market gets inefficient. And so as an active manager, we like the lack of stuff, quite frankly. So let's be a little bit more specific. I want to go back to what you said about Mohawk Industries. It's down almost 50% this year. Uh, I'm looking at earnings growth. I'm seeing negative earnings growth uh, for the upcoming quarter. Uh, Revenue growth has definitely been slowing down uh, over the last uh, couple of quarters, maybe a little bit of a pickup this coming quarter. What is it that you think investors are missing in this name? It's certainly trading at a discount, but it could become even a greater discount uh, if the numbers don't seem to come together. Sure. So we're looking at this over three years, right? Not three months. But when we think about Mohawk, what we see here is a company that's invested very heavily into some new production, some new manufacturing all over the globe. And that production will give them a, a huge edge in cost uh, to produce and in freight costs. But today, the issue they're dealing with is that those production facilities have a ramp-up period to them. And for that reason, they're making maybe negative EBITDA in the short term. Market doesn't like negative EBITDA in the short term at all. On top of that, 
they're huge consumers of, of raw material, and so inflation on the resin-based materials is impacting earnings in the short term. And so these, we think, are temporary issues the market can't overlook. But if you think about a three-year window, you're buying this company at valuations you have not seen for a very long time. And so that's our focus point today. But you might need to be patient, right? Especially if we see a downturn in the market cycle and people, you know, kind of pull back on buying floors and what have you, whether it's, you know, commercial applications, which is certainly what they play into, also residential. But if we see a pullback, those investments may take a little bit longer to pay off. Yeah, make no mistake, time arbitrage is one of the best things that an active manager can have, right? The market is very short-term focused and passive flows drive a lot. So our ability to think and invest long-term is one of our biggest advantages versus our passive uh, competition. You know, a couple of your holdings that jumped out to me in the the special global small cap uh, fund, I believe, Bryant, uh, are Dine Brands and Denny's. You know, both mm-hmm. in the in the dining space. I wonder what you're seeing there because we always look to those sorts of names for some insights into how a consumer is spending. Sure. So one of the things we love about these companies is the franchise model, right? So the franchise model reduces volatility of cash flow, and so comps are less important to us. And so we don't need to worry about the day-to-day, the month-to-month comps, uh, for one. What we're focused on is a long-term investment. So take a dime brand, for example. It's been an exceptionally volatile stock. The company's been reinvesting into their Applebee's brand, and those reinvestments are starting to pay off in, high, in higher comps longer term, and so that's a good thing. Um, what we're seeing, though, from the consumer is that consumers are out there spending. We don't see any slowdown in, in spending on what we consider to be a discretionary item like, like uh, dining. And so that's a good thing for consumers. What we like about this also is that this avoids some of the pressure from, from China, right? A lot of the consumer discretionary stocks are going to have input cost pressure and tariff pressure from manufacturing clothes and other apparel um, outside the U.S. And this company, obviously, these restaurant companies don't have that issue. So another positive thing within the consumer discretionary space with restaurants. Hey, just to be fair, and uh, we, Jason and I both like transparency, I am curious as the market, as we've seen some significantly uh, lower days in terms of trading uh, in the equity universe, what names have you been adding, buying into on those downturns? Yeah, so again, a lot of it goes back to where we're seeing the most pressure. So I think in the industrial material space, we're seeing some of the most significant pressure due to concerns about input cost inflation. So we like companies like Sealed Air uh, coming under immense pressure recently um, due to uh, some slow down, so inability to raise prices on some of their products um, despite input cost inflation. So that's a big one for us. Uh, container board companies, Packaging Corp, IP. I mentioned Owens Corning. Um, and so we're focusing there. And then again, in healthcare, we like names like Avarian um, or Steris or Whole Logics. And no worry about kind of a downturn. We've seen those housing stocks be under a lot of pressure. I think it was Deutsche Bank talking about um, maybe housing at the end of its affordability uh, range. Just got about 20 seconds. Are you looking at a housing downturn here? The market already priced it in. So we need okay. to see it now for the stocks to not work. And from here, it's pretty easy for the stocks to work in our mind. All right, we're going to leave it there. Bryant Van Cronkite, he is Portfolio Manager at Wells Capital Management, $4 billion in assets under management, joining us on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. So interesting to hear some of his uh, picks. If you smell what the rock is cooking. We did a little bit of research about our next guest, and what you just heard is his Walk on music. Actually, a great story I found about uh, Paul Rabel you did uh, back in 2015 talking about your musical taste. We almost went with Taylor Swift, which is apparently what <laughs> you listen to uh, to chill out. I don't know. That's just what I read. Yeah. I, is that I, true? Well, I, I prefer all je- all genres. <laughs> and uh, and so it, depending on what I'm getting ready for, if it's a game where, where, the, where the intensity levels are really high, you try to take on music that is a little more calming and 
I heard The Rock playing. That was a childhood idol of mine. There you go. And uh, anyway, the WWE is really interesting because we, we think a lot about it. But. Right. So who you're listening to is Paul Rabel. He, of course, is arguably the best-known professional lacrosse player, also an entrepreneur. We're also joined by his brother, Mike. They are the co-creators of the Premier Lacrosse League. And let me tell you, we've been talking a lot about this yes. uh, in my house, Carol Masser. Uh, so, Paul, tell us the idea behind this, because there's already a professional lacrosse league. Yep. You played in it. Yep, that's right. So, you know, I've been playing professionally for 10 years. And uh, f- for that time, my peers, myself included, and the uh, eight years preceding that in, in professional lacrosse's existence, players have been moonlighting as as pro athletes, and they take a full time job in finance, in real estate, other industries. Uh, but what we've looked at over time, and th- that time is the past fifteen years, continued participation growth in the U.S. and all over the world. We've looked at high schools being sanctioned east to west. We've looked at college agnostic of gender continuing to grow, and even internationally. Now there are fifty eight countries that are governed and sanctioned to play and compete. There are 46 this past July during the World Games. But if you look at other major sports properties, it requires a professional game that provides a a viable commercial opportunity and mass distribution of its product and its players for the sport and the industry to to really hit that exponential growth and potentially take lacrosse to the mainstream uh, sports ecosystem. So when we built the Premier Lacrosse League, we wanted to think critically and creatively on how we could solve for that, given you know modern consumption across our audience, new media, new tech, and this tour-based model inevitably. And, and we've been able to get there with the best players in the world, a major media rights deal with NBC Sports Group, and, uh, and now going to be uh, a national sport overnight by adopting this tour-based model. Yeah, it's a different model than what we've seen before. Talk to us about the importance of the media component, Mike, to all of this, right? Because unless you've got an outlet, eh. Sure. Uh, it was absolutely table stakes for us to have an NBC deal. Uh, and you know, part of that deal was uh, our linear exposure. And so half of our games are going to be on television, and we're incredibly excited and humbled by that. Additionally, what NBC brings is their production innovation uh, and also their uh, robust um, promotion of their assets. If you see the properties that get behind from the NFL to the NHL uh, to Premier League to PGA, um, they really invest in the production. And that's a big part of what we're going to be doing is investing and changing the way uh, that team sports are consumed, and we're gonna. A big goal of ours is to get underneath the helmet of these players and really bring those players to life. It's interesting you say it's different. You, you want to affect how team sports are consumed. So does that mean, Paul, you're thinking that the model that you guys are coming up with is going to kind of infiltrate other sports? So we think it's going to infiltrate other niche team sports leagues. Mm. So when you talk about the NFL, the NBA, the MLS, these are in the last one over 20, the, the former two over 30 different markets. So they build city, city affinity, but they're also all over the, the country. When you have niche team sports leagues, you're talking about eight to 10 teams. So you're actually ostracizing the lion's share of your audience and growing participants. So what we've done is reverse the model and we're city, we're not city based. We're going tour so that we can take the best players in the world and six independent teams over the course of a full regular season playoff and championship all over the country. And our fans everywhere can choose their allegiance based on their favorite players, the team cultures, the head coaches and such. So it's a, it's a unique way to think about it. But when we built it as operators, we call it inside out because you, you had mentioned how important the NBC deal is. When you're building a major sports property, you have to have best-in-class players in distribution. 
if you go the city-based model, you find owners who can invest and then stadiums, and then you have to build out the schedule, and that's complicated, and then you go for programming. And that's why a lot of niche team sports don't have programming because they're outside in, and we've built this business inside out. Well, and the whole uh, essentially time-shifting in in a lot of ways plays into this because we go to the Final Four the NCAA exactly. lacrosse tournament every year. You know, it was in Gillette Stadium the past couple of years, goes to Philadelphia, I mm-hmm. believe, uh, this coming uh, season. It's got to be the biggest single gathering of lacrosse fans 100%. anywhere all year, right? Yeah, we, we talk lacrosse internally and with our investors. It already has product market fit. The game's the oldest team sport in North America. It was founded by Native Americans. College programs like Johns Hopkins and Maryland have been playing for over 110 years. It's continuing to grow. What we also talk about is proof of concept, to your point. The Final Four is the gold standard of lacrosse right now, where you have the top teams in three divisions descend upon a major market city, and over the course of the weekend, they play at a premium sports venue. So our internal vernacular and with our players is, hey, we're taking the Final Four concept and dropping it at the pro league level for a full regular season playoffs and championships. i got to ask you, though. I'm thinking of uh, the major league lacrosse. What what are they saying? Are they calling you up and saying, hey, Paul, what's up? (laughs) What are you up to? I thought you were one of us. (laughs) Right. So, you know, there there are a number of things that, that we can comment on. But I think the most important is that on the outset when Mike and I were thinking through this business, Uh, our approach was to unify the game. And there's an indoor league, there's an outdoor league, there are international bodies, there's there's a growing youth culture and and privatized club programs. And so there's a lot amidst the growth that we want to help solve for. And as a major professional sports league, you can dictate that. But to Major League Lacrosse, our goal on the outset was to try to figure out a way to work together. Right. As you all often discuss, deal dynamics are tough. And your games are not going to compete when their games are on. We are. We, we, so we're, were you, I thought we're, they were going to be at different times. No, so we, uh, we're going to be in June, starting in June all the way through September. So we're at different times in the National Lacrosse League. And so this is what we're trying to solve for exactly because it, it's when you have uh, a, a, an unclear um, you know, professional lacrosse landscape, what we wanted to do was solve for that. So the National Lacrosse League is indoor lacrosse, and they play from the winter through May. Uh, previously, Major League Lacrosse was starting in April and going through August. One of the things that we were able to solve for in tour base was our schedule. So we're starting in June. So now pro players with us are going to be full-time with wages, benefits, and equity. They're also going to be able to play an NLL if they make a team there and essentially be paying, playing for eight to nine months of the year. There you go. And, Mike, i got to ask you, you know, you've done a lot of work around kind of the fitness business more broadly. You know, we've all seen, and Carol and I talk all all the time about sort of the affluence around fitness. Lacrosse, ultimately, pretty affluent sport yep. uh, in terms of the players, the money that people spend to, you know, I know this for a fact, <laughs> sort of bring their kids <laughs> along um, into club teams and whatnot. Why is that like, and, and will that continue to be sort of a, a relatively elite sport or elitist? Yeah, candidly, for for our game uh, and for our uh, league to grow, it cannot. But if you look at the current um, demographic of lacrosse fans, about sixty percent of those fans um, make over $100,000 a year compared to the national average, which is about 22%. And so to your point, they are affluent. We can't uh, rest on our laurels to only focus on that subset of people and that subset, dem- that demographic. We have to go out and capture net new fans. And we think the tour-based approach, 
the linear distribution we have, the media that we're creating run by Paul and Tom Brady, uh, who spent the last 15 years in the NFL, that is going to allow us to really proliferate and capture those sports fans. That's how we really look at our market, not just lacrosse fans. I guess that you put a lacrosse story on the Bloomberg and people read it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is your, uh, it's your core demographic here. Paul Rabel, Mike Rabel, so great to have you with us. Please come back uh, and let us know how it's going. Looking forward to seeing you have how made this league. His oh day Thank you for yeah. having us. I am going to be <laughs> a hero back in Sleepy Hollow. That is for sure. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. This drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Michael Sheldon back with us, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer, Officer excuse me, at RDM Financial Group, with us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, good to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. Hey, uh, so another week, uh, got a lot of tech, big tech earnings coming your way. Uh, midterms just around the corner. Uh, what should investors be focusing on in your view? Well, I think the, um, the near-term outlook for the market does look somewhat choppy. I think we're taking a sort of a more intermediate term look at the markets where we see that overall the consumer and business trends remain pretty healthy. Corporate profits uh, continue to rise. Uh, labor markets remain healthy. And uh, the Fed is raising rates, but it's doing so because the economy overall doesn't need the kind of emergency levels that it needed back during the last um, major economic downturn. For us, we're really looking at a few sort of leading economic indicators. So when weekly, weekly jobless claims, for example, start to rise, when real rates become tighter, when credit spreads start to rise or the yield curve inverts or the Fed gets too aggressive, those will be signals to us that the economy and the outlook for the markets may be changing uh, for a more longer-term basis. And which of those things do you think will happen first? Well, um, among those various uh, indicators, it's, it's really a toss-up. I think um, you know, they, either, any of them could happen at, at, uh, you know, at some time in the near future, or it could be several months. That's the other thing. We just don't know. And how much do you worry? I mean, we've talked to a number of investors about this idea of essentially getting too defensive or too conservative too soon, given that we are in the midst of the longest bull market uh, in history. And you know, how much do you worry about that, about you know, maybe worrying too much? Well, it's hard to try and squeeze the last you know, juice out of an orange when the economy has been going on in, in expansion for 10 years. The bull market has been going on for many years. But it's kind of um, common perception that the economy or the stock market actually doesn't do that well when interest rates are rising, when the Fed is raising interest rates. But that's actually not true. If you look back at historical evidence, the, the stock market actually does relatively well until the Fed overdoes its hand and the economy starts to turn. So it's actually perfectly normal for the stock market to do relatively well uh, as the economy strengthens and the Fed continues to, to normalize rates. I think the risks are the risks are over the next few quarters. The two biggest risks we see are, again, that the Fed raises rates too, too, too much too fast. Yeah. And then they also have the unknowns from the tariff wars with China. 
Uh, and there's a possibility that the United States and China may get together ahead of the G20 meeting in Brazil later next month. But we really don't know if that's going to provide any kind of, you know, fruit at this point. Hey, I got a question for you. Uh, you guys are always looking for growth-oriented companies. You're looking for disruptive technologies. These are your longer-term plays, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's cloud computing. Uh, what companies in particular are you keeping an eye on? What companies maybe have you been allocating new money towards? Well, uh, unfortunately, we can't name individual companies, but if you went over to China, there's a major company over there, which is similar, somewhat similar to Amazon, and they basically dominate the e-commerce space. So that's a company we feel very positively about, even though the stock is from... <laughs> Rhymes <somewhat>. with... <laughs> <laughs> You should come up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Another is if you opened up your pocket, you probably have a, a credit card. So we believe we believe that digital payments are actually disrupting cash in many parts of the world. And then cloud companies, that's where the growth is really coming from. So there are a number of U.S. and mainly U.S. and some foreign companies. But then taking a barbell approach, we also believe you want to invest in blue chip type companies that are growing free cash flow and dividends at an attractive rate over time. Do you think those traditional credit card companies, whether it's your Amex or MasterCard, I know you can't talk names, they like I, this still st- has stuck with me from last week about uh, one of our guests just talking about what's going on in China and how they've kind of skipped that whole credit card universe because they're doing everything through mobile payments. Does the credit card universe, the traditional, which is so big in the developed communities and developed worlds, do they play catch up with that? That's a really interesting thing that a lot of um, in the third world and in many emerging market countries, they skipped going to computers and now they just go to smartphones and they do all kinds of financial transactions on their smartphones and they're using them for all kinds of different things you never would have thought of five or ten years ago. So that's a very real trend and, and that's something we're, we're thinking about and how to incorporate in that in our portfolios. Great stuff. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer for RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.